All right. So, Melissa, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really glad we made this happen. Me too. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So it's Melissa Welliver, correct? That's me. Yes. So, um, Melissa, if you could ground yourself for our listeners for a second, give them a sense of who you are and what you do. Yeah, of course. So my name is Melissa. I live in the UK and my debut novel, The Undying Tower, will be out uh, in September, um, an ebook in October paperback. And I was a programmer for a few years in my family business until the pandemic hit. And I had to uh, step back a little bit from that. And then I was lucky enough to sell a book, well, a trilogy of books. So that's where I am now. I also work for a writing um, online course place called Write Mentor. Uh, We do some free stuff. We do some accessibility stuff and we try to be as affordable as possible. Um, And that is my background. Uh, So that's me. Right, right. So, okay, I have to say, it's so interesting to hear someone actually mention that because of the pandemic, they had to step back from a computer programming job, given that many people have the impression that basically anything you can do on the computer has been a safety zone in the middle of the pandemic. So I'm a little confused by that. Yeah. Okay. So um, I think, first of all, definitely we've all learned there was nothing safe and all the stuff that you maybe thought was always a safe job wasn't necessarily suddenly um so (laughs) my family's business works with payroll um Mm. in going into offices installing payroll and that was the bottom of the list when the pandemic hit and people had to work from home so (laughs) i ended up uh not there just wasn't enough work for everyone in the family business Mm -hmm. um so i took a step back and focused more on the writing stuff and uh, it, it was tough, um, but I was really lucky. I have a, a, my partner's a teacher, so he was still working and um, I was very supported by family. So I was OK, uh, but it was tough not working really for quite a few months in the middle there before I found some freelance stuff with writing, such as editing um, and helping mentor other writers. Right. Oh, absolutely. No, it's it's a great point. I had actually um, landed a new job in November of 2019, started right. training December and January, and then January and February, I started working the new job. And then March, my job was eliminated by city, state, and county. Oh, wow. And that was, they all said, no, you can't do that. The triple whammy. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. And eventually it came, I mean, the funny thing is at the at the time, I was actually working this amazing woman who had an amazing um, customer base um, at farmers markets, which is like a primary way of bringing the produce, the food, the meats, everything from the rural country environment into the city to feed people. And what was interesting was that grocery stores which are these indoor environments with circulated air and lots and lots of people all coming into this closed space, you know, they were left open, but all the farmer's markets were somehow relegated to being seen as like recreation or something or an unnecessary. And I'm like, we are outside where it's safer for not spreading a virus. You know, the wind's blowing past all of us and stuff, but no, they all got shut down pretty hard for a while there. Yeah. Yeah. I think it depends place to place. I know the UK had some harsher parts and then some parts where we probably shouldn't have opened up as early as we did. It's just been really a think for yourself. Think what is the safest thing that you could possibly do for you and your everyone around you, isn't it? It's been that kind of time. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I'm 
you, sh- you know, I actually dove into creating the Masks for Vashon project on the island with a couple of other amazing women. And then a whole bunch of volunteers stepped up and it was just this beautiful community event creating thousands and thousands of hand-sewn masks. So I'm all for being safe and and I still rarely go into public. But right. um, but my job went away. So yeah, yeah. I, I get that. <laughs> yeah, that's tough. <laughs> it's tough. It is interesting and yet it could be tougher. Yes, that's very true. Yes, definitely could have been tougher. Definitely makes you think about what you do have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. So, so the undying tower and mm-hmm. there's, there's no subtitle to that. No, no. It's okay. part of the undying trilogy. Right. This right, one's right, called right. the undying tower. Other titles, TBC. <laughs> I know. I know. So let's go ahead and I've got all sorts of cool things we're going to chat about, but I think mm-hmm. for, um, let's see, let's dive into for my writers. Let's start there. Um, they probably, so this is your debut, meaning what that means is literally you have not been published before. No, no. Okay. I think I've, I might have had a short story, um, uh, published in a pamphlet and uh, that's about it. Yeah. Okay. And this is the first of a trilogy. So all sorts of writers out there are wondering right now in this moment, how did you land a trilogy with your, um, you know, your first step out of the box, so to speak. Yeah. Okay. So um, that's, first of all, an interesting point. It's not necessarily my first step out of the box. Ah. So um, I've had an agent since 2017, June, 2017. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was a great agent uh, called Tessa David at Peter's Fraser and Dunlop, which is quite an old established agency over here in the UK. And she signed me with a different book. And we revised that book for a few months. We went out in uh, January 2018, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And that book did not sell. Mm -hmm. Didn't go anywhere. Um, Just wasn't quite hitting the right tone. There was no real reason. It was, we all know, writers all know, it's 50% look. So it just was not hitting the right desk at the right time. I'm not sure. Um, I then moved on to another project, which was this book, which actually was the first book, The Undying Tower's first book I'd ever finished. But I'd put aside because when I was querying it, it didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, my agent said, you know what, there's somebody else at this agency that would be a better fit for this kind of book, uh, dystopian, speculative and more YA. My first one was more middle grade. Right. And so she stepped in, Lucy Irvine. So she's my fabulous agent now. And we worked on it and went out again in about, must have been 2019, 2019, 2020. Gosh, I'm trying to think how long these things seem so long, you know. It must have been, uh, I think it's all in 2020. So, yes, absolutely pandemic wise. We went out about January 2020, December 2019, something like that, not knowing what was around the corner. Right. Pandemic hit, people were out of the office. It was just so difficult to get hold of anyone. I was thinking, how are we going to do this? You know, Mm. I always pick the absolute wrong time (laughs) to go out on submission. I know, right? You're like, yeah. I'm almost there. Oh. I gave it another go. It's three years now. So yeah, it must have been three years at that point. I was coming up to at the agency and you know, it's, it's awful. It's awful getting all those rejections. And then it was actually October, November time that Agora Books uh, came forward. And what was funny was in the meantime, because the months go by and you get no yeses and you start to think that's it. That's, oh gosh, I'm going to have to think of another project. I'm just going to have to tear out another piece of my heart and put it into another project. And so I did actually start writing in lockdown um, a bit after I decided to step back from the business. Um, So I was written something new over the summer and we were uh, revising that me and my agent 
when the um, Agora offer came in. So Agora is my publisher for the Undying right. Tower. And uh, I was really shocked. But what was funny was within the same week, we were sending out um, this new book for submission. <laughs> so it was all got a bit complicated at one point. But yes, so um, got the trilogy, felt huge sense of relief. Um, I'm not so useless like I thought I was. It Aww. wasn't all doomed. Um, right. And that was really nice. Yes. And they wanted three books. They could see it as a trilogy. They had this great marketing plan for it. They could see that it was a sort of story that would suit a trilogy. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's how that came about. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. And I have to be honest. I mean, I'm curious in your so you have a contract with your agent or mm -hmm. your agency. I have a contract with my agent. So, yeah. OK. OK. So. Yeah. So excellent. And then the Agora. Right. Mm -hmm. OK. So yeah. then was it an editor that picked it up or Agora direct? It was an editor. So um, what's the name agent? of your editor? The my editor is Peyton Stableford, and she oh, is amazing, right. has real vision. Yeah. She's the one yes. I've been emailing with back and forth, I think. She is, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, excellent. Okay, so so she picked it up. I'm curious, when, because I've, I've been listening to so many podcasts and different things about this. I don't know if you've heard of the Manuscript Academy. No, I haven't. Oh, you might want to check them out. They're sort of like um, in, you know, a similar category in a way to what you're doing with Right Mentor, which we'll talk more about later. And okay. um, but what's beautiful about them is they have like a two tier system. Well, three tier. One is they have a podcast that's free. Anyone can mm -hmm. listen to their podcast and um, they interview all sorts of people who are on the back end. And so you're just listening to agents and editors and all these amazing people talk about the backside, which is brilliant. Okay. You you want to be a good partner. As a writer, you want to be a great teammate. You know, you don't want to show up and have no clue. Yeah. Anyways, but but they're awesome. And so it's interesting because my understanding, at least over here, is that an editor might pick it up, but they still have to get it past the the group of people who sit down at a table and decide whether or not to actually publish it. So is that the way it was working for you too? Like the editor picked it up, but you're still on pins and needles waiting to find out if it's going to actually get approved? Yeah. So um, my agent didn't tell me until it had been approved uh, <laughs> that it was going through, which is probably the best way. Now I think about it, I'm sure some people, they'd be better knowing every step of the way. Um, I didn't actually know it was with Agora. And the great thing about Agora is they're a small but mighty team. So it's less yeah. that it has to go through lots of stages, like with a huge publisher mm -hmm. and more that everybody kind of group reads it and everybody's talking about it at the same time. And so it's not the same sort of timescale or filter system where it might get stopped at one point, which has happened to me before. I've definitely, when, when you get rejection, you usually get some feedback, especially from a bigger publisher and they mm -hmm. will say, oh, I liked it, but when I passed it to the marketing team, we were struggling to look at numbers and therefore it didn't go through, whatever uh. the reason may be. Um, so no, um, it, at Gore, I think it was more a group decision. <laughs> and just imagine, you know, when we were looking at numbers, you're like, but, but, but you're just imagining what those numbers might be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't know. This, I could be a genius. <laughs> I know. This could be the next Harry Potter or whatever it is. And yeah, and you're like, ah, oh, yeah, I guess. Um, what is it? Uh TMI, too much information. In some ways, you might be like, you, you might say to your agent, okay, there's certain things I just don't need to hear. Exactly. Yeah. You need to be able to talk to your agent about that. It's, it's funny with TMI, my publisher's 
asked me for a lot of input with the cover and I was giving them all of my favorite covers and all the covers that I thought worked really well and things that I didn't think worked very well and wouldn't fit with my vision of the cover at which point they said okay great that's awesome uh, we're now going to write up a brief for the cover artist and we're not going to show you that brief because if we showed you and you saw quite how I guess basic they have to break down the plot for the cover designer um <laughs> I would be like that is my precious baby you've just described Aww. it in such a basic way so they said um, right. they wouldn't show me that <laughs> right 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 yeah I you know it's interesting um there's a great podcast I was listening to with an editor specifically and she mm -hmm. had they had asked her what do you want to talk about and she's like I want to talk about why this takes so long I mm -hmm. want writers to understand so that they don't show up and I'm not explaining to each and every one of them forever you know here's why it's taking so long and mm -hmm. it was interesting because um she, it was like one thing that caught my attention that surprised me you could say was okay. that it would be it was edited like I think six times like, you know, it right. went to the people who would do, we're talking the editing, not not conceptual thematic editing, but this is like, you know, the deeper, finer editing. Okay. And she's like, yeah. so Each it draft. goes to you for two weeks and or it goes to them and then they send it to you and you get two weeks to review it. And then it goes here, here, and then it goes back to them and then it goes to you. And she's like, and that repeats, you know, like four times, six times, whatever it was. And I'm like, what? And she's like, so that's two and a half months right there. And I'm like, oh my gosh. But it also reminded me of, why I think one thing self-published mm -hmm. writers can definitely take away from that is you can't edit it too much because right. if someone's going to pick up your book and in the first page or three, they see a spelling or grammar error or two or five, you're going to lose them because their confidence in you just is blown. Right. So um, it was interesting because I got an ARC, which is an advanced reader copy of The Undying Tower. And I'm yes. reading through it. And I was I was seeing still, you know, there'd be like a spelling error here. or There there were little things. And I was like, at one point, this was interesting. I was like, wait a minute. I'm like, wait, she already sat down. She can't sit down again. She sat down a page and a half ago. <laughs> yeah. So I yeah. Like read everything in between it. And I'm like, did she stand up? Did she stand up? No, she didn't. And I thought to myself, this is awesome because someone's job is to find this stuff. Yes, and then that's I was, exactly what it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, what on earth would you do if that was your job and you're supposed to, you know, do you just read it and hope that you're going to notice? Do you have like, so it got my whole brain spinning. This was three days ago, spinning and spinning about what it's like to be an editor. It's all very fascinating, I think. Yes. So I think um, from what I understood when we were doing it, it goes through several edits with my agent, went through several edits with me before I gave it to my agent. And then it gets to the editor and we do what's called a developmental edit to right. start with, which is just a broad term thing. So things like, oh, the ending doesn't really work because it doesn't give the emotional impact of X or this character probably doesn't need to be here and we need to cut 5,000 words. So maybe we should look at combining them with another character, like huge, right. big overarching things. Um, then you go on to your next edit, uh, which might be um, like a copy edits. So that would be sort of spelling tense, like looking closer as well at each individual line, making sure things make sense. And then what people I think don't realize is the proof edit from what I remember 
um, and that is sort of approving the copy. So I get it, it's all typeset. It's sent to me. It's been sent to an external proofreader who's right. never seen the book. Right, so right, it's right. Easier for them to spot those things, and then it goes to print. So the ARC, the advanced reader copy, is somewhere in between there. They right. know it will have mistakes. I think it says on it something like uncorrected proof. That's what it oh, says yeah. on those. Oh, I totally yeah, expected those types it. Of books. Yeah, I was, but yeah. it's rare you get a chance to actually see that. It's fun. You know, it's like, oh, I'm a little bit inside the process. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm human. <laughs> yeah. You know, I have to say, I'm really glad that you actually just went into that detail. And I hope um, all of the people out there who are also writing and planning to submit may have just had the same reaction that I did because, I mean, like I said, I've listened to hundreds of podcasts and read lots of books, but um, I really like those exact examples you gave because in a way it's, it's always dangerous as a writer if you try to be a perfectionist to the point where you never end up actually submitting something or querying something because you feel like it's never quite ready. Yeah. And I think that's really a good reminder that someone could pick you up, an agent could pick you up and contract with you and an editor could buy a book, even though they're going to come back to you afterwards and say, by the way, I think that character needs to go. And I think your ending needs to be completely altered in some way to do this, because a lot of people feel like you have to give them something that is so close to perfect that they're going to yeah. only have problems with little tiny things and otherwise they love all of it. But there's more to what they're looking for, I think, in a person they want to work with than a perfect exactly. story. They want someone who they can work with and who's career focused and is going to be worth their investment because they're in it for the long haul, I think. Right. I agree. I think um, voice comes into it and the story comes into it. And if you love something enough, then you can find. And I, th I think the other thing as well, to be honest with editors, is they want to put their own stamp on it. They want to be involved yeah. with the development of the story. They enjoy that. They want to say, OK, and how will this story come into Agora? And Agora has a particular profile for putting out really meaty, great stories. And it sort of wants to fit into that PR to put it in a more cynical way, but also they want to feel like that they've helped make the story come alive. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. it's a team effort. It's not just you anymore. It's just you when you're writing on your laptop in your bedroom. It is mm -hmm. not you once you hand over that book. It's and, a whole yeah. team of people. Well, and that's actually absolutely what I'm looking forward to. I, I think one of the best things I love in reading a book is flipping to the acknowledgement section. And right. hearing an author gush about these people who you can tell from the way they're talking about them that they really have formed, you know, authentic relationships and they really, you know, have each other's backs. And there's that true team effort going on. It's like um, that's exciting to me to feel like I'm not going to actually I'll step out of the alone stage and I'll step into a, you know, we're working together as a team stage. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, no, I agree. And well, I'm certainly not looking forward to it because I'm convinced I've left off probably someone incredibly important. That's always fair by acknowledgements. You're writing them. It's like writing a Christmas card list. And then <gasps> right. your Auntie Joan says, why have I not had a Christmas card? And you're like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Missed off somebody. So I am worried because there was such a huge team of people, especially when it's your debut. I think the acknowledgements are longer. Oh. Because there's this whole team of people that were helping just with your writing generally. And you want to thank them all. Right. Yeah, so it can be really tricky. So I'm yeah. very hopeful, fingers crossed, that I got everyone in. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see here. Um, I wanted to make sure 
for people, sometimes people can't listen to the entire show. You know, they're mm -hmm. driving or something, they'll pick it up and then they get where they're going and they're like, I have to grocery shop. So um, folks, you're listening to Voice of Vashon right now. And my name's March Twisdale, the producer and host of Prose, Poetry and Purpose. And I'm interviewing Melissa Welliver, who if you want to learn more about her, you can go to Melissa, that's with one L and two S's, Welliver, W-E-L-L-I-V-E-R.com. It's as easy as that. And um, also, you can learn more about what she's doing with writementor.com. And there's um, that's right as in your writing, uh, dash mentor.com. And I actually did participate in their, I can't remember exactly what they called it, but it was their summer program. And um, mm -hmm. it was really exciting um, for people who are involved in the Twitter community, the writing community of Twitter. Um, you know, you've heard about Pitman and things like that. Write Mentor is, is a fabulous organization and I really love what they do. I admire it a lot. And so I'm excited for you, Melissa, that you were able to connect with them. Yes, me too. I love Right Mental. Yes, um, I actually uh, started with them. I met their founder, Stuart White, on Twitter, writing community on Twitter. Um, I think in about 2017, something like that, um, he was running sort of a little, he called it peer pitch. Like It was like a, a competition online where all you do is you pitch your book and your peers um, with the hashtag peer pitch and your peers would help you out with the pitch and say ways to improve the pitch. And then oh, you might I like that. that idea. Yeah. So it was just like this sort of smallish thing. And I always feel like even though probably he can think of a different place it started for me, that was where that idea of helping other writers and helping other people came from was that little Twitter competition that we did. And it was really fun. And uh, that, yeah, from that, it's so just nice. grown and grown. Because it wasn't a competition. It was a, a um, it was what? It was like a collaboration. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that was oh. what was so nice about it. it was the writing community coming together at various different stages and helping each other and boosting each other. That's the big thing we do at Right Mentor is being each other's cheerleaders. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, they, they completely succeed at coming across that way. It feels very safe and very warm and very positive. And every, every step of it feels that way, actually, because there's a whole bunch of different steps and things you go through. And I mean, steps like that are fun. You know, this mm -hmm. is sort of like, it, it's awesome. It's not like, you know, steps you have to go through. It's a very good thing. And it's interesting because, oh my gosh, it wasn't, it wasn't pit mad. I, you know, I'm new. I got involved in Twitter years ago. And after like a couple of weeks, like my thumbs were sore and I was confused and I just stopped. And <laughs> so in January, this was funny on, and I'm, this is the United States of America, right? So gives context mm -hmm. on January 3rd, I think I was like, I'd been listening to the podcast and reading, um, save the cat writes a novel and different things. Right. And somewhere along the way, I thought, oh, I just need to check out the writing community on Twitter and, you know, probably start developing that community. So on January 3rd of 2021, I decided to go on Twitter. And three days later, well, I think I can say hell on the radio. Pretty sure it's one of the words you can say. All hell broke loose. <laughs> and... I'm in Washington, D.C., and right. it's like Twitter blew up in every possible way you can imagine. And I'm just sitting here like, 
a newbie. (laughs) I was confused. I was overwhelmed. Baptism of fire. (laughs) Oh, exactly. Thank you. Great way to put it. And after, and of course, for me, I'm also, I come from a military family and um, I'm, I, that doesn't mean I wanted to go into the military, but it means I grew up with all the stories. You know, my granddad was shot down over Germany and spent two years in a POW camp. And I've got, I've just, blah. So there's, um, despite all the things that are wrong with the country, I have this real strong sense that you, you know, you work it out within the political realm. You fix the political realm. You deal with those issues. You don't do what happened on January 6th in my ethos. So it was emotionally challenging for me. And a week later, I was overwhelmed and I thought, you know what? This is what's great about Twitter. I actually get to curate my own content. I get to decide what I want this this community to be about. What do I want to be focused on? And I actually right. sat down for like two days and I had ugh, like 800 followers. Um, and I went through and I basically almost checked out the homepage of every single person. And if they were primarily focused on anger, fury, politics, all this type of emotional stuff, I just stopped following. And I created a writing-focused Twitter community for myself. That is what comes to me. Positivity, encouragement. And I have to say, Mm -hmm. the writing community is so incredibly um, self-supportive. I've been really impressed. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? I think with uh, Write Mental, so we run, you were talking about, it's just called our Mentoring Summer Program. What's really nice about that is we set up for all these. So people apply, just to explain briefly for people who don't know what it is. Yes. So people apply to us. uh, We'll have about 40, 50 mentors, something like that. And these are writers at various stages of their career, giving up their their summer time Mm -hmm. to help uh, people with their manuscripts, to get them that little bit further, that little bit push along so that they can try and get an agent. They can try and apply to small presses, whatever their goal is that they want to do. And this is for kidlets specifically. Yes. And, well, that uh, includes so we, YA. Let's be clear. It does include YA. Yes. yes. Um, so we did that. We do that over the summer and that is our free program. And what's really nice is we set up for all the mentees. Now we've run it for a couple of years. We've learned some lessons. We set them up with a Slack group. So that's like an online community group where they can all right. chat we pop them into lists on Twitter. We have a mentee liaison officer, a mental liaison officer. I'm in a group with all the mentors. So there's all these extra levels of community going on and you could be in the same boat as people who are at the same level as you, such as the mentees, but there's right. also ways on Twitter to connect with your favorite authors who've maybe published five books and you can learn from, and they can learn from you. I certainly learn from my mentee every year, Yeah, uh, things about myself and my writing. So I, that's what I really like about it is as well seeing people at different levels. Yeah. And it's a once a year thing, correct? It is. Yes. But the rest of the year we do run some other stuff. So we yeah. have um, online affordable courses. We really strive to make sure that not only affordable, but very accessible for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to make sure we, we pre we pre-record, leave stuff up for a week. We um, make sure everyone's paid within the guidelines of society of authors. We try and put on events that may be all written in case you're um, maybe struggle with video, maybe struggle with your internet connection even. Um, so people can go back and check from different time zones or if you, Right. Um, somebody that tires easily then you can come back to it in your own time so that's the biggest thing we're trying to be as inclusive and as accessible as possible um, mm-hmm. and then the other big event we run every year is WowCon 
uh, which is our online conference uh, that we run in September. Be September, is it 25th and 26th, I think, this mm-hmm. year? Um, so that is uh, running again, as it yeah. usually does. So, yeah, so uh, we try and make everything as inclusive as possible. I think um, one of the, you know, the world was already starting to adjust and shift. You know, the internet is making a massive change on so many levels. And on so many levels, it's incredibly positive. And, mm-hmm. you know, the the last year and a half, as the world has been trying to decide how to grapple with the SARS-CoV-2 um, virus, and, you know, there's a lot to learn. And I think that when... I started to know, I mean, I was paying attention in December, which is when a lot of people, I think, first noticed that there was that doctor in Wuhan who had um, sort of blown a whistle that something was going on. And the Chinese uh, government had initially been a little irritated with him for sort of going even minorly public, but Mm -hmm. it did catch people's attention. And so I remember by... Then we had someone who like flew in on January 16th into SeaTac and ended up being in the hospital for a couple of weeks, being observed, blah, blah, blah. So that was right here in Seattle where I live. So I was aware. And I remember turning to someone at one point and saying, you know, in a couple of years, we're going to have a lot of information. And that was my perspective. I'm like, this thing that's starting to happen, this was in March. And I was like, where it's going to take a couple years to really get a grasp of this. And between now and then, there's going to be lots of information flowing, coming in. You know, we're not going to, but, but data grows over time, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that perspective of this is a learning opportunity. You know, we look at what's going on, like you had mentioned in some ways that, um, well, I imagine all these online resources that were competing previously with in-person events, the in-person events aren't happening temporarily. And so you guys are having to do the work to broaden your inclusivity and become more available to people. And so it's interesting to see that humans do rise to the challenge and we do find a way forward, you know, even when the ground is really bumpy underneath our feet. So I'm happy that the internet is allowing you to continue to write through Right Minner to continue to be um, such a valuable resource for writers around the world. Right. Um, I don't think that's that's certainly not going to stop after this pandemic. Right. Fingers crossed. Knock on wood. Goes away. That is not going to stop. We're going to stay inclusive. It's, it's funny. We've actually been running it. We'd run it um, the year before the pandemic started. We ran it last year as well and then this year mm-hmm. because it's all online um, and part of our inclusivity um, uh, USP that we talk about a lot on the website and what's interesting is a lot of people were still sort of new to zoom and then when they were asking questions oh okay so zoom that's what you use it's like well yes that's what we were actually using to pre-record things before it's quite funny right um, they didn't because we were already running an online conference um but it, it also gets so much more accessible for authors who have to pay it's, it's a lot of money sometimes with uh, travel costs things like that um, absolutely whereas if they can just record at home we can get some amazing authors we've had some amazing UK white authors um tune in and give us keynote speeches and it's yeah. been incredible but you know winners of the orange prize winners of the um Costa coffee prize which is a big prize over here so we've been really lucky with that um and yeah. got some great people involved and yeah it's just except more accessible for the authors more accessible for the writers I mean obviously there's a lot of power and value in people getting together and so I I 
am definitely not against that. And I look forward to that being something that can also be done. But think about it. I mean, I know people who are like, they, you know, maybe they're not published yet, which means that they're, you know, still working their day job and they're writing on the side and they might save up their money for like two or three years just to be able to go to one writing conference. And, you know, so in a way by doing these things online, it really, it's sort of like what Airbnb did for travel. Airbnb allowed people who couldn't afford the $150 a night to stay in a hotel, you know, to be able to spend $33 to sleep in someone's spare bedroom. Yeah, exactly. I I think it's not perfect. We're always moving towards trying to be better allies. For instance, it's not just a monetary thing. There are people who are housebound. There are people who um, have maybe an autoimmune disease. That means it just going to a conference would be impossible, pandemic or no. Um, So we're always working towards trying to find different ways to make things more accessible. Um, But the internet certainly helps. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you live on a farm, I can tell you, travel is hard because finding someone to take care of all your animals and plants while you're gone, that's expensive. You know? Yeah. 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 Okay. So let's talk about the Undying Tower now, um, the first in your three book series. And yes. um, let's see here. I, so Prose Poetry and Purpose is about lifting up and supporting writers, specifically writers who um, really appear to be interested in inspiring positive social change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time. I mean, that's been, that's, that's like, you know, the umbrella goal that I have for everyone who comes onto the show. And so, yeah. yeah, so it's relevancy. It's all about relevancy a lot of times when it comes to fiction and your book, I, I'm thinking, how about you go ahead and start us off just by explaining your personal inciting incident, what it was maybe in your life that brought this story idea to you, and um, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. So, um, in I had I did a writing master's um, in, in creative writing at Manchester University in uh, 2012, 2013, and met some incredible writers on that course. But I must admit, I came off the back of it, and I was it was I was a bit oversaturated with writing advice and I didn't write for about a year and I didn't really have any ideas I'd brought off the course even though I'd learned a lot about craft and I didn't really do anything um and then I had a best friend from the course Caroline Chisholm um and she was an incredible writer and she sadly died um from brain cancer in 2015 and when I used to talk to her about her books that she knew she wouldn't be able to finish to the standard she wanted to to push them out into the world they were already pretty high standard she was on a fully funded PhD for creative writing she was an amazing writer but all I could think was Caroline is gonna kick my butt if I do not get this book written and push forward and and it's actually the book is actually dedicated to Caroline at the beginning um so to I was thinking about what I wanted to write about and thinking about a world where you don't have to worry about those sort of life out of nowhere things, right? Like cancer, um, those kinds of illnesses, mm-hmm. um, anything to do with old age, any of those um, illnesses coming in, um, deterioration of the body and what that world would look like. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, you've got vampires, you've got vampire fiction, you've got immortal fiction, but right. what if they weren't the ones in charge that were beautiful and sparkling in the sun and could run really fast. Um, what if they were actually the ones that were in the minority and would that scare people? 
And would people not like that? People don't like things that they don't understand that are stronger than them. They don't like it. Right. So that's essentially where the idea for the book came from. So in the book, um, the main character, Sadie, is a teenager and she lives in a world where 5% of the population are born without the ability to age past around about the age of 25. And these people being in the minority are essentially um, put down at every possible turn. So they're only eligible for the most dangerous of jobs because they are seen as a blight on society because they're increasing population. They are punished for the smallest of crimes, usually by death. And there's no real full citizenship for them. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to think about what it would be like if you're a teenager, especially thinking about it, coming back to the YA audience, if you're thinking about what you want to do with your life, how you want to make an impact on the world. And not only are you thinking, oh gosh, I have to do really well in this subject. And I'm only 15, 16 years old, because if I don't, I'll ruin the rest of my life. And right. I have to choose now, but to think if that life was a hundred years, a thousand years long, and you're still feeling that way, what would that feel like? So that's where the idea for the book came from. Right. Wow. I mean, I totally get that, that feeling I'm that, you know, your friend lost the opportunity and you're still here and still have it. And so you don't want to waste that. Right. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly how it feels. Yeah. 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 I um, Yeah. I totally get that. There's a, um, a couple of times where I've had a couple of health issues. I've been working on my novel series for 10 years putting on the back burner when I would take care of, you know, things with my family and stuff. And Mm -hmm. um, a couple of times I had a couple of health scares. And it was interesting. In both situations, like the first thing I thought of was, I haven't finished my book. And I remember being like, wow, I'm like in the ER with this massively swollen arm. And I'm thinking they might have to amputate my hand. And the first thought I have is not any of these other things, but how am I going to finish my book if I can only write with one hand? (laughs) Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then that's what made me realize, oh, this book really, really, really does matter to me. Yeah. You know, and you're a writer. So, of course, yeah, it's really, really important to you. Yeah. But I don't think since it was always going on the back burner and my children and their friends and my family and the garden and everything, that was always mm-hmm. my priority. You know, mm-hmm. my community was my priority. And But I was like, I am actually putting on the back burner this thing that I really, really believe in. And now the kids are older. So I'm like, I'm a little bit more free to focus, which is brilliant. But okay, okay. so, so, all right. I just think that your um, premise is, I love that you did that. You sort of did a spin. You're like, let's not make them this, you know, the super powerful, you know, ones. Let's actually flip it. And mm-hmm. um, so the undying element really does cause people to do that thing that we need to do, I think, which is think about what makes life worth living. And death is, for most of us, apparently not for the undying, but death is the this unavoidable thing that's going to happen. And yet it seems like we, in our culture over here at least, I don't know your part of the West, it feels mm-hmm. to me like there's not a lot of comfort around this unavoidable thing that's going to happen to all of us. Right. Yeah. I think, um, I think that's something I definitely found explored itself in the book, if that makes sense. So because I'd come up with, this is the type of book that I'd come up with a what if idea. So the what if idea was um, that, that these people don't live 
forever and it's only a small percentage of the population so what was nice about the world building especially with it being speculative fiction so it's sort of based in the future of our own world right is that it kind of started putting itself together so I was one of my first things I was thinking was if there are people who don't have to die what would that do to people's sense of the afterlife uh, whether it be religious or not, um, what is that sense of what happens when you die? For some people don't die. Mm-hmm. That would shake every core value you have. And that is one of the comforting things we take or try and form around death, right? Is what maybe what, and I was also thinking about, of course, it has a parallel with what you leave behind. If you say aren't religious, I'm not particularly religious. Um, what would I leave behind? So I was thinking about this book. I was thinking about Caroline. What could she leave behind uh, when she's gone? So yeah, I think um, the idea of death and if some people can avoid it, it actually highlights other people's fear of death. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely fed into the book a lot. Wow, I think that's really interesting. You're right because there is the religious or the anti-religion component in, um, and I think we see historically that in many cases when you have a more controlling system of power in place and I hesitate to use the word government because it can be a non-governmental entity that has power but it seems like um you know the Soviet Union I think sort of in a way I don't know if they legalized religion but they were definitely and you know seemed anti and then I think you've got North Korea is pretty much harsh on anyone that has a religion outside of worshiping the leader of North Korea. And so Mm -hmm. it's interesting. You, you did pull that in. What was it that made you want to, or why did you think it made sense for the protectorate to be so harshly against religion? Yeah. So um, one of the big things I did when, and I think uh, anyone lucky enough to get an ARC got a little sense of this. So I put together when I sent the book on submission, a little packet of materials that I made when I was world building. Yeah. Um, And one of them was, what would a constitution look like if you formed a new country out of the ashes of what was going on? So there's a little bit of background in the book, but essentially we're a couple of decades past the discovery of these people that live for a long time. When the book's happening, what happened before that in the immediate aftermath was this total breakdown of civilization with the thought of these people that don't die, with the fact that overpopulation would boom so fast uh, with people that aren't actually dying. And so people being born aren't filling the spaces of people who are gone. And um, I had the idea of these religious wars. And so my thought was, what would perhaps a new government party coming out of it's um, essentially set in the UK, but they've changed the name of everything. Um, What would they think needs to be left out to to make the most harmonious state to them they'll think it's harmonious to us of course it's massive cutting of freedoms and that's i think quite often you were talking about russia and communism and i think quite often there's a they think they're doing a good thing but it's not so that one of the rules in the constitution of the avalonia zone where the book is set which is now the uk well it's now the uk in the future it's the avalonia zone is that there is no religion allowed it is completely banned we're not going to talk about the afterlife we're not going to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, I knew I had to get rid of the royal family because they're God anointed. So I had to get rid of the words United Kingdom. Um, again, this all fed into the world building and kind of felt right. a natural, natural mm-hmm. progression. Um, yeah. So that was where that came from. Right. 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 So um, and then. Yeah. Of, 
obviously overpopulation is definitely something that people are thinking about right now. And um, then that comes into the story as well. What, um, what sort of message or ideas are you hoping to bring up in the minds of your readers, not in order to provide an answer, but to give them a springboard to jump off of into their own thoughts about the topic? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, uh, especially for my young readers, because it's a YA novel, I want young people to realize that the most important thing is not sticking to a plan that has to stick forever and nothing will change and you must live through that and you must pick the subjects you need to pick and please your parents and then nail that down and then never change your mind from the age of 15 16 which is what it is in the UK essentially when you start narrowing down those subjects for as an example Mm -hmm. Um, and I also wanted young people to feel empowered that they're the ones that are going to be here in the future and they're the ones that are going to be the leaders of tomorrow so they need to whilst thinking about the future they also need to feel flexible and feel powerful and take back that power for themselves so I think that's a huge theme in the book Um, even when faced with what feels like the whole world is against you if you know what's right you have to push through what you think or what you've been taught and you have to push through for what's right Mm -hmm. you know it's interesting um I have some friends who are men and they they've gotten okay I have a lot of friends that are men but (laughs) (laughs) I have some friends who are men who are uh like late 50s and 60s so they've been around for a while they've they've um let's say they've matured and or they've what's happens to wine they've aged like a fine wine Okay. okay and um one of the things that I'm noticing a lot of them are saying is they're reflecting on human history, long-term, but also recent. And a lot of them are like, you know what? We, as the males of this species, don't seem to really necessarily be very successful at the um, creation of a peaceful, harmonious, cooperative society. And then right. they'll say, the women need to take over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Y'all like screwed it up for, for thousands of years. And, like now we get to clean up the mess. I was like, well, yeah, I think we would do a better job maybe. But, you know, you can't just like, you know, I'm like, yeah, you have to stay engaged. You have to also actually make amends or participate or change and encourage other younger men to you know, arrive where you have arrived a little sooner. So the other thing I also notice, and is that there's, and I'm wondering if this is going on where you live in the world, is Mm -hmm. that I feel as a mother of two kids who are this coming week and a half, they're going to turn 20 and 23, my sons. And I've known them, I've known their friends. um, And when you have kids, they tend to have, especially if you're homeschooling, they tend to have a broad age range of friends. They're not just their Mm -hmm. own school or class level. And so for the last, since 2008, when we had the economic collapse, I've been watching all of these young people sort of struggling to grapple with the consequences of the previous generations and trying to find a new pathway forward that's not exactly what their parents and their aunts and uncles did. The the world is not the same as it was in the 70s or the 80s or even the early 90s. It's very different. And what's interesting is that there's a lot of 
hand-wringing and wailing and flailing about in the older generations that are literally predicting gloom and doom. We're, you know, if we don't fix climate change in the next 12 years, eight years, six years, getting shorter, the world's just going to end. All humanity will die. And, and I'm sitting here watching this wailing thing happening with all these older people, and the children are observing it. And there's this right. attitude of, well, the kids are going to fix it. You know, they're more savvy than we are. They know what's going on like we didn't realize back in the 80s or 90s that maybe we were part of the problem. No, we were clueless. And these kids understand, so it's their job to fix it now. So whether men are saying women need to take over or the adults are saying, you know, the kids have to save us all, you know, it seems to be like this this foisting off of responsibility onto especially the youth. So... Mm -hmm you're writing in dystopia and you're trying to empower young people. And I love how that came forward constantly in your YA novel. What are your thoughts in general in the real world after someone finishes reading your book or whatever, what would you like to encourage them to feel empowered about or um, in a, a way in which they can not necessarily absorb the, there's nothing we can do yeah. attitude. Yeah. I think, um, I think even looking at um, in recent years with uh, young heroes coming up like Greta Thunberg and speaking out about her truth and speaking out for, for what she knows. I think there's a, there's a huge theme in the book um, with the main character Sadie in that she wants to shy away from responsibility or mm -hmm. thinking too much about what's going on around her. And for a large portion of the book, without dropping any spoilers, she's in a privileged position and she thinks back to a privileged position and she ends up in an unprivileged position. And she has to, she's essentially given time to think about how she handled herself when she was in that privileged position, when she did have that voice, when it's perhaps not as loud as the protector, it's not as loud as the adults, but she had something, she had a little bit of power. Mm -hmm. And I think the main thing I'd like young people to go away with isn't necessarily thinking about a specific topic. I like to discuss topics in my books, but I don't want to be preachy about no. it or tell you what to think. Um, yeah. I think it's generally... Think about how you can use your, is there ever a situation where you can use your voice to make something better? Even if it's that one small thing, you don't have to be Greta Thunberg on TV in the UN. Mm -hmm. She's amazing, but you don't have to be that. There is, there will be something there every day, prejudices happening all around us mm -hmm. that I certainly based a lot of the smaller scenes in the book on things I've seen, whether it be on the news, whether it be in person, as we go back out into the world after this pandemic. And there will be things that people are, thinking about more and I'd like you to think what can I do to help make this better and mm -hmm. be safe even if it's go home and sign a petition even if it's just think what what is it you could do instead of just walking away or thinking well it's not me doing it I should just leave this alone if you see an injustice think about what you could do to make that better right mm -hmm. right there's that idea um they have in schools at least on this side of the Atlantic, where they're like, there's no stupid question. It's something you say to students in order to try to encourage them to be brave enough to raise their hand and ask a question, even though they're expecting right. 25 kids to start laughing at them, right? Okay. And you're yeah. trying to overcome that. And I think another way to look at that is that you're never the only uncomfortable bystander. Right. If you're standing, you know, the, the bully depends upon the bystander. The bystanders exactly. are the ones that have the real power because if they all stand up and say to the one or two bullies, you know, that's not cool, you need to stop that, 
then the bullies can't do what they're doing. Exactly. And they lose that power. Yeah. And when you stand up and say, hey, you, you need to stop this, the 12 people around you who are thinking that but are too scared to speak up are going to feel a little bit more comfortable saying, you need to stop this. And then another person says it and another person says it. But sometimes you have to be the one to get the ball rolling. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So I think that's definitely a major theme is in the book is I've been told by a couple of people, the main character isn't necessarily likable at the beginning of the book and that's okay. Yeah. It's not about being likable. Um, hopefully she's more likable by the end of the book and she has that character arc that lots of characters have and the heroic arc and stuff like that. Yeah. Speaking of save the cat, but um, yeah. So I, I'm hoping people will come away thinking, you know what, just because I'm like this today, tomorrow's a new day. I can think more, I can look more, I can... There's a lot of stuff about teenagers being selfish and I think it's actually really lazy rhetoric. I don't think teenagers are selfish. I Mm -hmm. think they think a lot about the world around them. They just feel scared to speak up. Yeah, or they don't don't feel confident that they know enough about the world yet to be able to say something that isn't going to get scoffed at because of course the adults do such a good job of rolling their eyes and saying yeah yeah well you know wait a few years and then you'll understand it better I mean we really do sort of shut them down exactly yeah Melissa thank you so much for taking some time out of your evening way over there on the other side of the Atlantic to join me here on prose poetry and purpose oh thank you so much for having me I've had a great time yeah, yeah. And I just really enjoyed your book. Um, when is the second book slated to come out? Um, I believe, although this is one of those publishing floating things that can change any time. Yes. There's another pandemic. Uh, I believe um, the same time next year. So it should be autumn, fall next year should be book wow. two and then the same for book three. Oh, well, congratulations. I mean, of course, that that's a little intense for you on the writing side, but I think <laughs> for readers, you know, to only have to wait a year in between books is really, really nice. Yes. Yeah. It's a, it's intense, but I think it's a, it's a good, a good type of intense. This is a story I feel like has scope for three books. I yeah. live inside this world in my head. So I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'll, I'll I promise I'll get it out on time. <laughs> well, and like I was saying earlier, I'm really glad they gave you a full trilogy for this because I, you know, like I said, I was getting maybe three quarters of the way through and I'm thinking, oh, this is definitely got like there's plenty of room to play in this world. And I have to say you were not preachy at all. So if you had any concerns about okay. that, definitely didn't That's happen. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you again. And I hope you um, stay safe, healthy and um, congrats on everything that's going well in your life right now. Oh, thank you so much. And yes, do stay safe. Hope everyone stays safe at this difficult time that we're nearly through. Fingers crossed. I know. I will. Yep. We are strong. We will. We'll persevere together. Exactly.